Very good morning, and I praise God for our wonderful time of worship together as we come as a church community to honour His name and now to reflect on His Word. Let's uh, commit this time unto the Lord. Gracious God, as we come to Your Word, fill us with Your Holy Spirit and the light of Your presence. In Jesus' name, Amen. The big idea for today is that Christ is at the centre of a Christian household. Over, in, over, over the chapters of Ephesians 4-5 to that we have covered so far, the church is presented as the body of Christ. And as members of that body, we have been equipped with spiritual gifts for the building and strengthening of that body. We're called to put on a new self, through which God's righteousness and holiness would shine through. And Paul provides us with this concrete picture of what the church is, the body of Christ, of those saved by grace, both Jews and Gentiles, empowered by the gifts of the Spirit and filled with the light of Christ. And this is something that Pastor Shern preached on last week. In today's passage, we might be surprised to learn that the most visible expression of the church in Paul's day is the Christian household. The early church in the New Testament met and gathered as individual households. At the time of Paul in the first century AD, the concept of household is not exactly the same thing as our modern family unit. In the first century, the Greco-Roman household, the Greek term used here is oikos, consisted beyond husband and wife and children. It consisted of relatives, dependents, workers, slaves, business partners, political clients, if uh, politics was involved. It was more like a family estate that included people, property, and the social, economic, political life of that family. Under Roman law, the head of that household was the Peter Familias, the father of the family, who held the legal rights over the entire family estate, persons, property, although the wife could be actively involved in managing the overall household. Uh, the closest equivalent in terms of the Penang community would be the Chinese family business in our grandfather's or great-grandfather's time, in the late 19th or 20th century. Uh, take the sundry shop, for example. Downstairs would be the shop where business is conducted. At the back would be, uh, or on, on the top floor, would be where the family lived and ate. The workers were almost like family members, at least some of them, and ate their meals with the family. Or if the office was away from the house, then different carriers of food would be prepared to be sent to the office or factory location for family members and workers alike. It was roughly something along those lines in the ancient Roman world for households, except that slaves were integral to the economy and family life at the time of Paul. And as Paul and others preached the gospel, it was likely that the whole household, this extended family estate, were converted and came to the Lord in time, it may have included other members of the neighbourhood community as they came to join the church as they met in the household. 
So the early church was founded on churches meeting in homes and households. The individual household became an important expression of God's household. The household, the oikos, which is with this family structure and estate organization, became an important platform which formed the basis of church and spiritual growth in the early New Testament era of the church. However, Paul was not content to see this household structure being run as business as usual. The ancient world, as in some parts of the world today, was a male-dominated patriarchal society. The men held all the legal rights and positions of household and government authority. Because Paul now sees the Christian household as part of God's own household, he drastically undermines any male pretensions to spiritual superiority or chauvinistic behaviour by reminding believers of the centrality of Christ as Lord over all and the sacrificial nature of his love and headship over the church. Paul is concerned that relationships in a household are based on mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. This seriously undermines any pretensions that the husband or male head of the household could have his own way all the way. That being said, Paul does believe a family structure and headship is important for stability and growth, which is why Paul writes the present passage in Ephesians and a similar one in Colossians on relationships in a typical Christian household. Although the concept of household in Paul's day is much different from our modern family unit, it does cover the core husband-wife-parent-child relationship that could be applicable in our own time and context. The church is where the headship of Christ is practiced and whose members are believers, empowered by His Spirit to shine as light in the darkness in every aspect of family, community and work life. This is what it means to be in a Christian household. Because this household church, where family, community, workplace are lived under the Lordship of Christ, this, this, this household is such a powerful gospel witness, it is also the focus of spiritual attacks. It is subject to attacks from within when we have anger, bitterness, envy, drunkenness, sexual immorality and disunity that Paul mentions earlier in Ephesians 4 to 5, and attacks from without by spiritual powers and principalities of darkness that we will see next week in Ephesians chapter 6. Our household, our marriages, our children, our extended families, our schools, our household business, our work life are highly contested grounds. They are spiritual battlefields precisely because they are or can be highly powerful expressions of God's redemptive grace 
where lives are transformed and people are saved and healed into the kingdom of God. Dr. Herbert Tan recently did a seminar on family discipleship when he reported the results of a family needs survey done in 2014 that showed that uh, 80, 85% of marriages in our churches had red flags indicating some risk of breakdown. Not necessarily that it will happen, but uh, some of these risk factors are there. He also cited a study, this is an external study in the States, I believe, about 80% of youth problems are rooted in the health of their parents' marriage. The health of the body of Christ, then, is greatly impacted by the health of the Christian household. Now, very quickly, this Christian household structure goes beyond the common family unit. The singles, single parents, widows, orphans are all included in God's household. Paul himself was single, as was Jesus himself. In his letters, Paul mentions ladies who were possibly meter familiars, family heads of household, who were likely leading the church that met in their homes. For example, in Colossians 4.15, Paul sends his greetings to Nymphia and the church in her house. So although Paul will put emphasis on the common family household of husbands, wives, parents, and children, our understanding of the God's household must embrace uh, those who are singles, single-parent families, often children, disadvantaged families, as beloved and cherished members of God's family. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. In terms of our application today, our reverence for Christ transforms Christian households in the following ways. First, headship redefined, heart parenting, and holy labor. First, headship redefined. Family headship must be modeled on the sacrificial love of Christ. When we talk about leadership and structure in family households, it's important to establish what is the nature and basis of that headship and structure. Instead of the pervasive view and practice of Paul's day that believed in the unquestioned chauvinistic superiority and dominance of males, Paul lays down the foundational cornerstone of a household church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Any notion or practice of headship will now have to be seen or understood in the context of mutual submission and the ultimate lordship of Christ over the marriage and family. In Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24, wives are called to submit to their husbands. Their submission to the headship role of husbands is to be referenced to Christ's headship over the whole church. Just as Christ is head of the church, so the husband has headship over the wife. Now we must pause and consider the nature of Christ's headship over the church. Is Christ's headship used for oppressive abuse and selfish chauvinistic attitudes? 
Or is it for life-giving security and redemptive love? The answer is clear, obvious, and emphatic. Therefore, a husband's headship is not to be used as an excuse for any sort of abuse, emotional or physical. Neither should it cause wives to suffer in silence for any such abuse. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, we are told the true nature of a husband's hardship, uh, headship. I almost said hardship, but uh, yeah, headship. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Headship is to be expressed as sacrificial love. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church, so the husband exercises his headship by giving himself up, putting aside his own interests and ambitions for the sake of his wife. In the next following verses, Paul says that this is to the husband's own benefit since he and his wife are one flesh in marriage. Christian headship carries authority. It's a delegated authority under the Lordship of Christ, but it does carry authority with accountability to the Lord. Any God-given authority is to be respected but must be exercised with the knowledge of final accountability to the Lord Jesus himself. When a wife respects and submits to her husband, she does so with the knowledge that her husband will sacrificially love her and consider or prioritise her interests to give himself up for her if necessary. In this way, then, Christian marriage is one of mutual submission. Now, let, let's be quite honest with one another. Not one of us can ever do this perfectly. In fact, we must be honest to say that quite often our marriages are far from this ideal, or at least there's much room for improvement and growth. But being far from perfect, however, does not excuse us from obeying God's word to us. Instead, as in all other God's commands, we pray and trust in God's faithfulness and provision of grace as we seek to obey the Lord in all things. Wives should express their respect and submission in ways that honour the Lord and are aligned with His ways. Again, this excludes any quiet resignation to any abusive behaviour. Husbands will be wise to recognise that submission is not the same thing as blind, unquestioning obedience. Any form of headship must be exercised out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all. And I do think that most of us here today recognise any successful marriage and family life requires both husband and wife to work closely together hearing one another out in mutual love and respect in their spiritual life, marriage, parenting, family career balance, and all major decisions of life. Here's our first reflection question. What is the most meaningful aspect of mutual submission in marriage for you, for those of you who are married? And for the kids, what is one thing you could pray to God for your parents? Thank you.
Second, hard parenting. As most parents know, parenting is both rewarding and challenging. Parenting is certainly hard as, is, as in difficult, but as uh, Dr. Stock Taransky and Joanne Miller put it, parenting is really about hard work. As they put in their book, parenting is based on making hard connections to children. Hard connections allow core values and principles to be learned and internalized rather than merely compelling behavior changes without any long-term transformation. But parents can only connect with their children from, a, from their own personal heart connection with God. We can't give what we don't have. It's only when we parents are constantly filled with God's love, righteousness and faithfulness that we are able to meet or make deep connections with our children. Although parenting will involve discipline, behavioural correction and guidance, at its heart, parenting has a long-term or even internal impact when we connect with our children to help them connect with God. Long-term parenting would be to pass on our faith, to nurture, protect and build that faith in the hearts of our children for the next generation. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. At the end of that verse, Jesus concludes, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I think these are also lessons here for parenting. When we interact with our children, even in times of correction and discipline, what we say and how we say it has great impact whether we are connecting the right way with our children. When we interact and speak with our children, they must experience the good that God has placed upon our hearts, not the harshness or inconsistencies of our own moods, ambitions and anxieties. Even when Discipline and correction are needed. Our children must experience that with the goodness of the Lord in our hearts. One thing I realize on a personal level and try to do is to be aware of my own bad moods, tiredness and impatience when I'm trying to discipline and correct my son. Caleb, I hope you're listening. The discipline or correction may be necessary, but I may be unduly harsh or use the wrong words if I'm already in a bad mood. So I've got to create some space, if possible. Not always possible. Kids know how to press the, the wrong buttons at the wrong time. Uh, but I try to create some space, if possible, from my bad mood or anxious thoughts at that moment from the necessary discipline of my son so that I don't correct him without the goodness. Of the Lord. I know this is very difficult. Um, yesterday I was uh, preparing my sermon while trying to do babysitting at the same time, and of course, he come in chucho chucho. Difficult to keep patience, but uh, nonetheless, I'm sure there are a lot of you here are very experienced, more, far more experienced parents than I am. So uh, please WhatsApp me or put in a chat any kind of tips uh, that you can help me with, right? But what do we as parents 
fill our hearts with. In terms of parenting, do, our, do we guard our hearts for our children? Do we store up the goodness, grace, and truth of the Lord that comes from a deep personal faith and connection with God? If we constantly fill our hearts with how to make our children score better in their exams, how, that, that, how they must be better than their peers, how they can qualify for the best-paying jobs and bright careers, how they can make the family look good, then our anxieties from all of that would tend to flow from our hearts to our conversations, our guidance and our interactions with our children. Now, I'm not suggesting that academic grades and education planning and careers are not important. I sometimes tend to get either anxious or ambitious, ambitious when thinking about these things myself. Of course, we want our kids to excel and, and to do the best they can, guiding them and helping them and encouraging them to reach their potential is a fundamental part of parenting. But we must not allow any of that to crowd out the central purpose and calling of their lives to know and love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their strength, with all of their souls. We must not inadvertently deprive them of the joy of knowing and experiencing God as they grow up with unrealistic demands or unrelenting pressures. In our heart connection with our children, we must not project our own ambitions and anxieties on them. The priority of our heart connection with our children is to love them unconditionally and to journey them, journey with them in their life of faith, to help discern and encourage their sense of God's calling for their lives. And so when we kind of fearfully think about the future of our country, the future of our education system, the future of where they would be, we naturally want to project our ambitions and anxieties on them, but the most fundamental part of our Christian parenting is to help them discern God's calling for their lives. To see good education, grades, and careers as possibilities that God can use and bless, but not as springboards for selfish ambitions. To see gifts and talents as part of the goodness that God calls into our lives to be a blessing to others, and not tools for self-promotion or to make the family look good. As a family, we have to remind ourselves and teach our children to say with Joshua, that, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, it's clear that parenting is the responsibility of both parents. In Ephesians chapter 1 uh, to 2, children are told to obey uh, and honour their parents. But Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 emphasises the important role of fathers as the spiritual head of the household in the training and instructing of their children in the Lord. Now, I believe that 
the nurturing and love of mothers for their children is a given, but Paul highlights the fact that fathers must not be absent in providing spiritual leadership at home. And, and because of their authority, fathers should be careful not to exasperate or anger their children, to be dismissive of them. Heart connections take time and investment and sowing with much prayer and sometimes tears, with no human guarantees that everything will turn out well. But if there are no human guarantees, then we learn to trust in divine grace. And I want to address the younger kids briefly. I'm sure all of you know what a promise is. Uh, my young son, Caleb, takes promises very seriously. He remembers quite clearly when my wife and I make any promise to bring him to the beach or to buy him ice cream. He doesn't quite remember Chinese that we want him to learn. Some of the Chinese words don't remember very well, but the promises he remembers very well. Nowadays, when we uh, promise Caleb to bring him to the beach, we now must remember to put in some conditions. Oh, if it's not raining or crowded, else we will never hear the end of it. Yeah? I'm sure you keep a list of promises that your parents gave to you. Huh? So promises are very important uh, things in our lives. But it becomes even more important when God makes a promise. When God makes a promise, we have to pay special attention. In today's Bible passage, God's words, this is the starting of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, God's words say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you. They may enjoy long life on the earth. This is, uh, this is a command that Paul is quoting from the words of the law which God spoke to Moses during the Exodus. This promise is God's way of providing care and protection to you within a Christian family and within a church community. When you obey and honour your parents, first of all, you please God's heart. You're doing the right thing in his eyes. You also have a safe and protected environment to grow up in. You will learn ways to cope in life and with disappointments with the love and support of your parents. Now, in case you haven't noticed yet, your parents are not perfect. They also make mistakes, yeah? But from the day you were born, until the day you grow up and have a family of your own and beyond, out of all the people you will ever meet or know, your parents will always be the ones who love you from the heart, no matter what. No matter what you have been through, no matter what you have done, they may express disappointment, but they will still love you from the heart. God places a special love in the hearts of parents for their own children. So honour and respect your parents by obeying them as they care for you and caring for them when you grow up and when they are old, even as we trust that God will watch over our family life. 
So here's our second reflection question for everyone. For parents and adults, how do you model God's faithfulness to your children or those under your care and for the kids? When do you find obeying your parents hard to do? And would you ask God for His help in obeying your parents? Third, and I'll cover this more briefly, holy labor. As we look at Paul's instructions to masters and slaves, we need to again understand the first century master-slave world. This kind of world is very much different from our current middle-class employment kind of context. Slaves in the first century came about because of wars and conquests, as well as uh, economic hardship. So some of the slaves played roles like being a professional tutor, um, you know, guardian to the, the kids, etc. because uh, they, they may have uh, run into debt and they couldn't pay and um, they have to sell themselves to slavery. Slavery then was a recognised institution and embedded in the social, economic, political fabric of that world. But Paul again undermines this slavery structure by inserting the lordship of Christ into the heart of the Christian household, which at that time, some of them had slaves. Slaves have a higher calling to serve Christ himself in the conduct of their work. On the other hand, masters need to know that a far more powerful lord has now claimed their slaves for himself. The status of masters have been essentially subordinated to become stewards of those who belong to Christ. In verse 9, there's um, the instruction to masters. 
Therefore, both slave and master are now answerable to Christ for the nature and conduct of work. And on the part of the master, he is also answerable to the Lord for the treatment of those under his stewardship. Although we have now a different context in our middle class employment situation, the same principles of work and conduct before the Lord can still be applied. Our daily work should be dedicated or set apart for the Lord. Whatever we do, whether people are around us, whether our bosses are looking over our shoulders, whatever we do, that work should be an offering, a dedication to the Lord because He Himself gives us the strength, the skills, the talents, the opportunities to offer something of worth, something of value. Could be your own family, could be an organization or company. Even though we may answer to human bosses, the work should be dedicated for the Lord's honor and should be done wholeheartedly with effort and dedication. Not just to merely clock in the time or to make do with the bare minimum. Likewise, if we are in positions of authority over others, our conduct, decisions, and actions should be honorable in the Lord's sight and provide good testimony for the faith we have. Positions of authority do come with difficult decisions and sometimes disciplinary actions that need to be considered or taken. We cannot shrink from these difficult decisions or actions, but we must seek the Lord's counsel in all that we do, knowing all positions of authority, whether in family, work, church, or government, are answerable to the Lord. We who are comfortable in the middle-class employment context should also be aware that there is this modern-day modern slavery that is happening even in our midst, where you have migrants, you have refugees that come through the borders of the country and are subjected to basically slave conditions, far more oppressive than in your typical ancient Roman household. And some of them are beaten to death, starved to death, some of them are neglected. And now, as God's, by God's grace, our civilization, our society has, in that sense, developed with civil authority, with modern laws and legislation, we as a church should not also be unaware that there are those who are suffering under very repressive conditions. And so, whether we are having our own factory or businesses, whether we are involved with organizations that employ uh, migrant workforce, we have a voice, a position of influence to demonstrate God's mercy, His compassion, His grace, His holiness, be able and be able to speak into such situations where obvious abuse are happening. For our last reflection question, I'd like to spend a few moments to reflect on this question. What aspects of your household or work life do you find God-honoring? 
for the kids, ask your parents how you can pray for their daily work, whether in the office or at home. So in conclusion, know that God is working in and through Christian households and families. Be submissive to one another in the household out of reverence for Christ and do model Christ's love and faithfulness in family and work relationships. The Lord bless you and your families and may this Christmas bring renewed joy, peace and hope into all our families. Amen.